If you have a Bible, uh, or need a Bible, there's some Bibles right by the post kind of in the center there. If you have a Bible, or if you have got it on your phone, or anything like that, I'll invite you to open with me to Jonah chapter 4. Uh, we've been walking through this little book of Jonah for a few weeks now, and we're coming to the end of it. Uh, what's left in the book of Jonah, as you flip to Jonah chapter 4, might be one of the most unexpected and surprising chapters in the whole Bible. I mean, the biblical narrative, there are some surprises that God would love us, and I, I get that. But what happens here as, as this chapter, or this book plays out is, is when you think about it, it's, it is pretty mind-blowing. Now, many people who have heard the story of Jonah, if you maybe heard it as a kid or you watched it on VeggieTales or all the things, you, you, a lot of people think that it ends actually when Jonah's in the belly of the whale, repents, and gets um, deposited, is a nice word for vomited, onto the beach. But as we know, we've actually covered another chapter since then, and we've got one more to go. So that's only about halfway through the book. A smaller number of people might remember that after Jonah ran from God, uh, was thrown overboard into the sea, swallowed by the fish, spit back onto the beach, he actually got called by God again, which is unique for uh, prophets in the Bible. And then he actually obeyed, and he went and preached and had a great response to his message. And lots of us think that's where it ends. Okay, done and dusted. He preached, they repented, we're good. And it does seem like a good place to stop. If, if we're just writing a story, that's a great place to stop. God showed mercy to his prophet. God showed mercy to these people. People turned to God. Let's get on with another happier story. And last week we did leave off with a, a, a beautiful, hopeful verse at the end of chapter 3 where we read that God saw their actions. That's the actions of the Ninevites who were enemies of God, but they heard this message from Jonah the prophet. And God saw that their actions, that they had turned from their evil ways. The people had turned to God. And so he relented from the disaster that he threatened them with, the consequences for their actions. And he did not do it. But that's not the end of the book. There, there's, there's one more chapter here, and it's actually in this chapter we kind of get the big idea of the whole book. So, again, just to recap a little bit where we've come from. Uh, Jonah, we heard, was a, a prophet of God. Uh, called by God, and God said, Jonah, arise, get up, go to Nineveh, preach to them. The, the evil of the city has come to my ears, God says, and, and they need to be told what they're doing is wrong, and there's consequences for this evil behavior. And Jonah didn't want to go. He said, no, though, these, this kingdom, is, there are enemies. If they repent and turn to you, maybe they'll get even stronger, and what chance do we have then? So God, instead of going to this exceedingly great city, I'm running the other way. And so he did. He ran, and, and then he experienced God's judgment and got that second chance, turned back to uh, Nineveh, went, preached, and there was that massive response. And God uh, told them this would happen. And that the, because the people turned to God, God didn't overturn the city. And this is amazing. We, we need to, like, sometimes I think we, we come... Uh, we come to our Bibles and think, well, of course that happened. It's in the Bible. Or it's maybe a bit of a familiar story, and we're like, well, of course that happened. Why wouldn't it happen? But think about this. It's a city of, we're told, 120,000 people plus their flocks. It's an exceedingly great city and the, one of the most powerful, if not the most powerful empire of the time. One of God's prophets, an enemy of this superpower, steps into town, preaches a message of repentance, and the city turns. That's crazy, right? 
That's like, well, we said Nineveh is in modern-day Iraq. That's like one of us walking into a, you know, a predominantly Muslim city today and say, hey, repent, because God sees your evil, and he loves you, and he wants you to come to him. And they say, oh, you're right. We should turn, right? Tim Keller notes in this story, many modern readers respond to such a story with skepticism. We're quick to believe stories of mass violence, but it's harder to believe that the various classes of people from a great city would, in unity, agree and turn away from injustice. However, that's exactly what happened. And it shows us that, hear this, the word of God is more powerful than we can imagine. Anyone else need to be reminded of that this morning? Just a couple of us? Let me ask you, anyone else need to be reminded of that this morning? Okay, thank you. We can carry on then. Now we might think again that the, the, the book should end here with Jonah celebrating, like kind of dancing his way back to his own home, saying God's name has been made great. This people has turned. Truth has won out. But let me read for us. Jonah chapter 4, verse 1. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became furious. He prayed to the Lord. Please, Lord, isn't this what I thought while I was in my own country? That's why I fled towards Tarshish in the first place. I knew that you were gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and the one who relents from sending disaster. And now, Lord, take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. That's quite the response from God's prophet to God doing an amazing thing, isn't it? We should be shocked by this, I think. Jonah's just experienced the biggest win of his entire career as a prophet, and he's furious. So what's going on? Again, God's done an amazing work, one that uh, lends us towards skepticism, and Jonah throws a temper tantrum. And he basically just yells at God and says, God, I told you this would happen. As if God needs to be told what would happen. I knew you were going to do this. I knew this would happen if I obeyed you. I knew I couldn't trust you to have things turn out the way I want them to turn out, God. You, what you've done here, he's basically saying, God is wrong. Yikes. But Jonah is angry at God because God did something Jonah did not approve of. This is the created one being mad at the creator of the universe. And before we start thinking, oh, Jonah, what have you done? How could you possibly do that? Good thing I never do anything like that. Be very careful before you say that, because you and I do the same thing. Maybe you thought that after you started following Jesus, as you listened to what he called you to do, maybe then I'll meet Mr. Wright or Mrs. Wright. You know, if I start following Jesus, parenting should be easy because my kids should just fall in line and also follow Jesus, right? Maybe you thought after I start following Jesus, you know, my, my health will be great. My career will take off. These relationships will be healed. All these things will just, everything will start coming up, Sean. And when it doesn't, we can tend to say the same thing. God, I gave up this for you. How can this be happening to me? Now, it's 
okay, and I'll always say it's okay to have worries and doubts and questions about God and what he's up to and how that works and, and the way that we can't quite see what it's working and, and, and maybe totally understand what he's doing. And that's okay. We can take it to God. The Psalms have some really like blunt words that we, you know, if it's in the Bible, we're allowed to say it back to God. But this is another level. This is getting angry at God. And actually, Jonah accuses God of injustice and sin. And he's so angry that he says he'd rather be dead than see good happen to his enemies. As we look in, it seems like Jonah's angry for at least a couple of reasons. And the first, that it seems like Jonah expected consistency, or I should say a certain kind of consistency from God. He expected God to add, act in a certain way. He, he knew the violence of the Assyrians. He knew the violence of the people from, from the king to the lowest in Nineveh. And he, he knew that God should act somehow. God is a God of justice. So he figured God's wrath should be poured out. Punishment should come because that's what God's like. That's what God should do to other sinners. But if we're in week five of this series, I think at least four of the five weeks I've pointed us to Jeremiah chapter 18, where God says, at one point, I might announce concerning a nation or a people that, that, that I will uproot them, I will t- that, that consequences will come. But if they turn to me, I'll relent. See, God is both just and merciful. Jonah expected a different kind of consistency from God. Jonah also seems to have had problems with the character of God, which, again, if you, if you find yourself questioning the character of God to the point where you say, God, it's either you or me, we need to have a bit of a Bible study. Jonah had problems with the character of God, and he actually goes so far as to try to quote the Bible against God. And not just any verse in the Bible, he actually pinpoints and pulls out that verse from Exodus chapter 34 where God says to Moses, Moses, here's who I am. Here's my name. And Jonah says, ah, you said you're this, but you're not. Exodus 34, 6 and 7, you read that the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's what Jonah says. God, I knew you were this. I knew, I knew you were this, and, but it didn't seem to come out the way that I wanted it to. He's so disappointed in God's character. One, one commentator says, Jonah, Jonah, excuse me, Jonah says the deferment of justice on Nineveh as a weakness on God's part and disapproves strongly of sharing uh, the Lord's compassion with the unlovely. I got to tell you, like, Preparing and reading and studying and preaching this series is one of the most uncomfortable series I've ever studied for. Because so much of it is about Jonah wants to keep God for himself and for his people, but not for those people. And God's mercy is for us, but those people, they've made their mistakes, so they deserve God's judgment. And God is gracious to us, but he shouldn't be gracious to them. And God is abounding in love to us, but he shouldn't be abounding in love to them. Jonah disapproves of the Lord sharing his compassion with the unlovely. He was mad, Jonah was, that God showed grace. He showed favor to the Ninevites. And Jonah hated the idea that God's grace was shown to people that he didn't believe deserved it. 
especially if they were non-Israelites. Jonah was upset that God showed mercy. Mercy is, is, is a little bit different than grace. It's, it's caring for people with tenderness and compassion. The, the word in the original language kind of carries this concept of, of a mother caring for her child. And Jonah is livid that God would look down on an evil and violent people who were the enemies of God and the enemies of Israel and be gentle and compassionate and caring towards them. One other writer, John Feinberg, says this about mercy. He says, there's a significant difference between grace and mercy. They both involve unmerited favor. You don't deserve either of them. But the difference is that where grace is given to those who are miserable and desperately in need of help, it may also be given to those who have no particular need. But on the other hand, mercy is specifically given to those whose condition is miserable and one of great need. People who are, who are broken and can't fix themselves. He says, with respect to our need to pay for sins and be forgiven, the human race is in great need. What God did for us in Christ on Calvary, which Jonah is ultimately pointing us to, is an act of great mercy. We're in this miserable condition in our sin, and we cannot save ourselves. We need someone else to act for us. Jonah was upset that God was slow to anger, that he was patient. He yells at God for being so extremely patient with the Ninevites and not dishing out the judgment that, that those people deserved immediately. But instead, God gives this undeserving people a, a second chance, a chance to turn away from their sin and to turn towards God. And Jonah's mad that God was abounding in his faithful covenant-keeping love in spite of the actions of those rebellious people. The word here that we, we have is a faithful covenant-keeping love is a, a Hebrew word called chesed. And it's, it's this tricky word to kind of nail down in English. I bet if, if each of us pulled out a different translation of the, the English Bible and looked for this word in it, we'd probably all find a different translation. Uh, you might have in your Bible faithful love. You might have steadfast love or, or kindness or, or loving kindness or even just love. And it's all kind of wrapped in this, uh, this idea of abundance, that it's, it's, it's overflowing love. Uh, that we've called this series the relentless love of God. And that's kind of, that title comes from this word. It's, it's God's unrelenting love. The, the nearest word that we have in the New Testament for this is that agape love. Maybe you've heard of agape love. It's that, that love that really it's, it's unconditional, it's faithful, it's never-ending. It's the one that we don't deserve and the one that doesn't run out towards us even when we run the other way. That's the idea of this, this chesed love in the Old Testament. Jonah's mad about all these things. And then he grieves over God directing this love towards Nineveh. Now, what's really fascinating is, is if we've, you know, we've read the couple chapters leading up to this, God or Jonah had no problem with God's character when it was directed towards him, right? When he was running and when he was on the ship and God showed him grace and mercy by sending the fish and by giving a second chance and by uh, being slow to anger and not just killing him and uh, being abounding in faithful covenant love, Jonah was good with that when it was for him. But when he showed it to someone else, that was a problem. I listened to uh, preacher Alistair Begg preach on this passage and loved how he says this. You have to, it's a bit of a longer quote. You have to imagine it in a thick Scottish accent. 
Um, I won't try to replicate that because that's not good for anyone. But he says this. Now it's interesting that despite the fact that Jonah had a churlish attitude, that he was narrow-minded in his approach to things, that he was responding in the wrong way to God's kindness, God doesn't write him off. Hallelujah. God provided a large fish to save him when he could have easily provided a large lion to eat him. He could have responded to him by saying, Jonah, I've now had perfectly enough of you. I gave you one word and you went in the wrong direction. I sent a fish to save you. I spat you up. You began to preach and now you're as miserable as sin. Why don't I just send a lion to eat you? But he doesn't do that because he's a gracious and compassionate God. Then he says, aren't you grateful that God hasn't sent lions to eat us because we were disobedient in his plans? How many of us would still be here this morning if on the occasion of our disobedience, he sent a lion to eat us? The congregation would be vastly depleted if we're honest, and I would certainly not be the preacher. I know that for sure. All you would see is one of my shoes sticking out of a lion's mouth somewhere as it went scurrying off down the boulevard. But no, God is gracious and compassionate. Again, I keep hitting this. It's really important for us to see what Jonah has just done here when he yells at God. He seemingly forgets all the grace and mercy and patience that God has shown him and then tries to use the Bible against God to justify his own anger. But he doesn't actually even quote that whole verse from Exodus. He stops before he gets to the part where it says, God will not leave the guilty unpunished. He conveniently leaves that out as he yells at God. He's created this this simplistic, almost straw man picture of a God who just loves everybody and punishes no one. And he tries to use the Bible to justify his own anger and bitterness. And again, before we shake our heads at Jonah, saying, how could you, Jonah, how could you possibly use the Bible to yell at God? We're all at risk of doing this. We all risk falling into the same trap. We all risk using the Bible to justify ourselves and our actions. Now, it might be a little bit easier for us to look at that scholar over there or that that preacher over there who has taken a few things and kind of pulled maybe them out of context so it looks like the Bible argues against itself and contradicts itself. So now we can throw out the whole Bible because there's contradictions everywhere. But look at them do that but it also might look like you and I opening up our Bibles, flipping through to find that one or two verse that's really just a good gotcha verse and allows me to justify the way I'm acting and to judge them for not acting the same way. Whether they're Christians or not, whether they have the same views or beliefs that I do, just using a verse, uh, maybe two, or maybe just a couple words pulled out of a verse to show myself to be superior to them. If there's one thing that we need to hear from this, it's that the Bible is not a sledgehammer to hit people over the head with, to say, you're wrong, I'm right. Again, Tim Keller notes, whenever we read the Bible in order to say, aha, I'm right. Whenever we read it to feel righteous and wise in our own eyes, we are using the Bible to make ourselves fools, or worse, since the Bible says that the mark of, the, of evil fools is to be wise in their own eyes in Proverbs 26. What we can say about the Bible is that if we're reading it and, and start to feel more righteous, feel better about ourselves, we're misreading it. And we're missing the central message of the Bible. 
One writer says, when, when we are reading and using the Bible rightly, it's when it humbles us, it critiques us, it tells us you're not perfect the way you are. You weren't born this way. You're not wonderful just the way you are. It critiques us, but it also encourages us with God's love and grace despite our flaws. There's a French philosopher, Jacques Ellul, who similarly says, what the Bible teaches us about ourselves is all to the effect that we are not righteous. We're not good. We're not good enough. And that we have no means to justify ourselves. And beyond that, we have no right to condemn others and be right against them. That, that's only, the only thing that will save us is a gracious act of God. That's what the Bible teaches us. And if we stick to that, Reading the Bible is useful and healthy and fruitful for us. He's saying that if we are only using our Bibles to puff up our own egos, to say, look how great I am, I followed this one and this one and this one today, then we're reading it wrong. We might as well put it down. And actually studying the scriptures in that way becomes a source of death and Satan's work, which is pretty strong words. And Jonah misquotes the Bible and uses it against God. The only other time in Scripture we see someone quoting the Bible and twisting it to misquote God is when Satan is tempting Jesus in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4. And it seems obvious as we read these words this morning that, that Jonah's understanding of that Scripture and of the Scriptures as, maybe as a whole, it's not giving him life. It's not giving him joy. It's actually causing him great despair because he figures, well, if God, if you're going to be like that to them, it's better off if I'm dead. We actually get a bit of a hint of Jonah's meltdown here when we look at his, his prayer in chapter 2. And again, throughout the series, I've been quite helped by Keller's book, The, uh, the Prodigal Prophet. We see in that prayer that Jonah's run from God because he thought God was going to be merciful to his en enemies. And that was, in Jonah's mind, unjust. But in chapter 2, in the belly of the fish, Jonah's face to face with the reality that he needs God's grace. And, and if, if he needed God's mercy, and if God was going to be fair, then he was going to be finished in the belly of that whale. Because that's the only thing that he deserved. And so we, we, we watch through his prayer that he, he, he grasped a little bit deeper this idea of God's grace and his own need for it. But right near the end of his prayer, in verse 8, he says, Jonah says that those who cherish their worthless idols, have turned their back on God's mercy. Now, Jonah's recognized his need, but, he no, but there's still some pride there, right? He's still setting himself up, well, I'm closer to God because I don't have these idols. Those who are worshiping idols in the rest of the world, those people over there, they're far from God. They've turned their back on God. He's figured, he's learned his lesson, and that he was in the religious right, and again, he's trying to justify himself by performance and effort and works. His self-righteousness had shrunk some, but the prayer, it's, it's, his pride is still there. It's like pulling dandelions, right? If you, you see the flower, if you just pick the flower, that thing's going to give you another flower. If you just pull the grass, if you mow it or pull the leaves out, as long as the root's still there, that, that weed is going to regrow. Self-righteousness is like that. If you don't get right to the bottom, if you don't pull the whole root out, it's going to come back. In Jonah's prayer, he rightly cried out, salvation comes from the Lord. The only way I can be saved is through the work of God. But thank God I'm not, not like that. There's still some work to do in God's heart, or in Jonah's heart, excuse me. And there's still some work to do in mine. 
and I suspect there's still some work to do in yours. God's really been challenging me with that, that, that this year and lately as well through here. Is, who is my neighbor? Do I want God's mercy and grace and patience for them? Do I want to show them that? Do I have compassion for them? Or do I say, ah, you know what? If they'd only follow God, they'd be in a better spot. Man, there's a lot of Jonah in me still. But thank God that he is gracious and merciful, abounding in love. One last a little example story from Keller in his book. He says there was, they were building an interstate, Interstate 79, from Pittsburgh to Lake Erie. And there was one stretch that they couldn't finish for years because it went over a swamp. And so they had to put a, a bridge down over this swamp to get the highway over. And they kept drilling down pilings to, to lay the foundation. But no matter how far they drilled and poured these things, they just kept sinking and falling over. They couldn't hit solid rock at the bottom. So they kept drilling deeper, and it wouldn't stick. And then deeper, and they, it kept giving away. He says Jonah's heart was like that. Every time it seemed like he had to take God and his grace to the very bottom, it turned out he just needed to go a little bit deeper. There's still some more work to do. And so he asks, what does it mean to finally find that bedrock in our own hearts? He says, if we ever pray, God, I'll obey you if you take care of this thing, we're not there yet. Because the most important thing in our heart is not God, it's that thing. That's what we believe is foundational to our happiness. As long as there's something more important than God in our heart, we will be like Jonah, fragile and self-righteous. But when we do get to the bottom, when we do get to bedrock, we recognize all the ways that, that, we, that God has given these good gifts to us and, and we've used these gifts as idols and made them little gods instead of just thanking God for them and going on. We'll turn to him and, and he will be the most important thing. And when we've done that hard work of recognizing the idols in our lives, putting them back in the, their rightful places as gifts from God, then we can start serving God not to get things from him, but just to get him. To worship him for who he is, for his sake, for the joy of knowing him, for the joy of delighting in him and becoming more like him. And so this section closes with God. Sometimes, we, you know, God can speak in the earthquake. He can speak in, speak in, in all the, the noise. But I have a feeling, and this is just me projecting into the text, so take it or leave it. Jonah's just huffed and puffed and let God have it, and God just kind of takes it and says to Jonah, Hey, Jonah, is it actually okay that you're angry about this thing? Like, let's, let's think about this. Is it right for you to be angry about this? God just responds with a simple but penetrating question. It's not wrong for us to be angry. But this kind of anger, the anger of self-righteousness, for Jonah, it's a sign that he's serving a counterfeit God. It's showing that that Jonah has some idols of, of his own. In this case, it's a race, it's nation, it's, oh God, how we're keeping this thing our way, and how dare you go to them? God's going to have to deal with Jonah's idolatry if he's ever going to have peace, and God's going to have to deal with our idols too if we're ever going to have peace. Let me pray for us. God, thank you again for this morning and for this time and for this text. 
I thank you for, thank you, I do thank you, but it's, it's an uncomfortable thank you for just how uncomfortable this book is and that it seems so revealing. God, I pray that you would show each of us this morning where we're like Jonah, where we've still got work to do, where, where we are, are misunderstanding your work and, and upset about it. I pray that you would show us the, the idols in our lives, the things that we have set up as being more important than you, whether that's relationships or friendships or our, our gear edges or, or whatever that might look like. God, I pray that we would put all those good gifts back in the place where they belong and, and give our hearts to you. God, thank you that you are one who is gracious and compassionate, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love. Jesus, thank you that, that you came. Thank you that you walked this earth and modeled for us what it looks like to be completely and fully obedient to God. That you showed us how to relate to our neighbor and that everyone is our neighbor. That you showed us how to, to value those that, that our culture or our people might call unlovely. And you showed us that every single person on the planet is beautiful and lovely and valuable to God and is on the heart of God and that no one has run too far from the call to repent and turn to God to be too far gone. Jesus, forgive me and forgive us for when we have gone astray, for when we have, have judged others, when we <laughs> deserve the same judgment, where we have, have one, one set of uh, values or understanding of, of what we want you to give us, but have another for those, for others. I pray you continue to work in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.